just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to come together and to look at your word. We ask for you to guide and lead and show us what you would want us to see from this section of scripture. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Zechariah chapter 2, starting at verse 1. I lifted up my eyes again and looked, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then said I, Where go you? And he said, To measure Jerusalem, to see what is the breadth thereof and what the length thereof. And behold, the angel that talked with me went forth, and another angel went out to meet him, and said unto him, Run, speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls, and a multitude of men and cattle therein. For I said saith unto the Lord, Will for I saith the Lord, will be unto her a wall of fire around about, and will be the glory in her midst. This is kind of an interesting section of scripture because it very much appears to be a prophecy about the millennial Jerusalem as we go through this. Uh, so Zechariah says, you know, he's, he, we just got done with this whole section where he's talking to an angel and he saw the horns and the powers and the, and the, and the growth of, of the, the kingdoms. And he says, again, I looked up and I saw a man with a measuring line. Now, this is something God speaks of often in prophecy is a measuring line to, to check out where people are. And the picture is as an architect or a builder stretches out the line to measure and cut the wood and make sure everything is the right size. And this is the picture that we're here, that we're here. Uh, in Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48, they're measuring everything. <laughs> They, they measured the Jerusalem, they measured the temple, they're measuring the outer court, they're, they're measuring everything in that, in that section of scripture. Uh, in Jeremiah 31, uh, 39, God is measuring Jerusalem, uh, and God is always putting up a measuring line against his people, and his measuring line is his righteousness. And so we, we see here, this angel is going out with a measuring line, and so Zechariah asks him, where are you going? <laughs> it's kind of an amazing thing how bold these prophets are in their visions. I <laughs> uh, see somebody wandering around with a measuring stick, he does, and he goes, where are you going? He goes to measure Jerusalem. Uh, and this is kind of an interesting thing because in Isaiah 21, 11, we, we get the measurement of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, 12 furlongs or, or 1, approximately 1,500 miles uh, in each direction, including up. Uh, and so he measures Jerusalem. And this is one of the reasons we look at it. God is always measuring Jerusalem because Jerusalem is his seat. For whatever reason, God has chosen Jerusalem to be his. And apparently for all of eternity, because the new Jerusalem will come down in the new heaven and new earth, and he will rule from that Jerusalem as well. But he has set Jerusalem as his city from way back. In David's day, he set Jerusalem up as his city. Satan has set up Babylon as his city. And we see all through the scripture that Babylon, usually if it's not referring to the nation, refers to Satan's dominion. And just as it does in Revelation, it talks about Satan's dominion uh, as, as his, his kingdom in in uh, Babylon. And God says, the angel's going to go measure it. Is it worthy? Is it worthy yet? God is always wanting to bring a measure. He brings his word into our lives to measure our status. Now, the good news is our measurement is in Christ. <laughs> Otherwise, we'd be in trouble. But God, is, but God brings his word into us to say, are you closer and closer to Christ and to help, help us not get proud. One of the problems we as human beings have in general is that we tend to get proud. Every little thing that happens, you know, we might start out very humble and all of a sudden we start thinking, well, you know what, God, you're really using me. I must be something special. And then God will knock us down a few pegs just to remind us who we are. Uh, but, you know, this is something I was talking with a gentleman today, you know, and, he was, and we were talking about how easy it is to get proud and to, to battle. 
you know, and submission, you know, we use the word submission and a lot of times, it, you know, people will use it again, you know, for women again, you know, toward their husbands. But God uses submission all over the place. He says we're to be submitted to our government. We're supposed to be submitted to our bosses. We're supposed to be submitted one to another. You know, there's submission everywhere. Why does God want submission? He wants us to learn to be humble. It is hard to be submissive when you are too proud to be submissive. And this is what ends up happening because anytime you talk about submission, everybody goes, well, they're not worthy or they're, uh, uh, you know, and I give you all these excuses of why they can't obey God's word. And it's an amazing thing to me, and I know I do it myself, you know, God, these are the reasons I can't do what you said. You know what? God doesn't listen to us when we try to make excuses. You know, and we, we all have areas in the scriptures where we look at God and go, God, if you just knew, you know, how this doesn't apply to me. Yeah, and I can, you, what we're doing right now, I can picture God up in heaven just kind of laughing. Well, I do know, and I, and, I, and I know that my way is best, so I would, would like you to obey regardless of what you think. And, you know, it's not just submission. It's all over the scripture that we go, well, you know what, God, you know, you know love your enemy. Uh, no, God, you've got to understand my enemy is... You know, is my enemy is, you know, just somebody I cannot love. You know, God, you can't mean that for me. You know, God says, I want you to be forgiving. Well, God, you just don't know what they did to me. You know, all of those, though, boil down to pride. What happens to me? You know, why I can't, you know. And I've said this before, the more we use the word me and I in our lives, the more trouble we're in with God. Because all is supposed to be about him and my flesh being crucified. And God is saying, I want to measure <laughs> Jerusalem. I want to measure, because ultimately, the, Jerusalem comes down from heaven as the bride adorned for the groom, which is the church. So in essence, God is always measuring the church and saying, are you there? Are you glorified yet? And we're not. But his whole growth plan for us is that we grow. You know, we are clothed in Christ. God sees us as perfect, but his plan is for us to become more like him with each passing day. And how does he do that? He holds the word of God up next to us and says, are you there yet? And the answer is always going to be no until we're glorified. When we get raptured or we die, whichever comes first, we will not be able to say, yes, I am there. Once we're glorified, then we'll be able to say, I've arrived, and it's not me who did it. It's God who did it for me. And the angel goes out to measure. And it's kind of an interesting in verse 3. It says, Behold, the angel that talked with me went forth, and another angel went out to meet him. So he's seeing angels all over the place. And you know, one of the things that surprises me about Zechariah, most of the prophets, when they see an angel, fall flat on their face or, or, or fall down and have to be told to get up. We're not seeing that with him for some reason, and I don't know why. I don't know why he's at, because all the angels always tell them, get up, I'm, I'm a servant just like you, you're not supposed to worship me. And if they is, is accepting worship, then it's Jesus. And we don't see this in Zechariah. Zechariah is not falling down before these angels uh, for whatever reason. Right, and I don't know what it is. It, it just it struck me that he doesn't fall down. Even Daniel fell down in front of the angels, you know. Uh, but he's not. At least it's not recorded. <laughs> he may have very well fell down, but not being recorded. But it's not recorded, which, which struck me as strange. Uh, and kind of makes me wonder why, and I have no answer. If, anybody, if God gives anybody an answer, let me know what it is. Uh, because I just think it's strange. It, he doesn't fall like most of the people do. Uh, maybe his relationship with God is closer than all the other guys and he's not, he's not as overwhelmed. Um, but he doesn't fall down and he watched these angels and one of them, and the one angel said, run and speak to this young man. <laughs> you know, wouldn't you like, love it for the angels to be telling other angels to come and talk to you? <laughs> and here's what he's saying, you know, go talk to that young man. And say, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as a town without walls and multitudes of men and cattle therein. Now, this is a time when you had a walled city for protection, right? 
And he says, Jerusalem is going to be basically overwhelmed with population, is what he's saying. It's going to, the population is going to overflow the walls and they will be like an unwalled city. But this is also a prophecy that has been out there many times. Ezekiel 38.11 says that there's coming a time when Jerusalem will be like an unwalled city. And in Revelation 21.25, it says the gates will never be closed because God is the protection of the city and the new Jerusalem in, in the new heaven and earth will not have a wall that is functioning as a defense. So God is... Ref- referring again to the prophecy that Jerusalem is going to be a city without walls. And technically, it's a city without walls right now. In the, in the re-coming, rebirth of Jerusalem, there's a wall inside, but that wall doesn't mean anything because it's the ancient wall. It doesn't mean anything. It's a, an unwalled city even today, but they're not quite at peace, <laughs> which is what God says is going to happen. So we see here... When Zechariah says this, it's like a very strange thing. You're, a big city is going to be not needing, a, not needing a wall. And, you know, we think about this. God is our protection in our life. The more we learn to depend on him, the better off we are and the easier our life is. Because this is so important. We get in God's way oftentimes by trying to defend ourselves and protect ourselves. We would be much better to say, God, you said vengeance is yours. I am just going to let you be my defender. Is it easy to let God be your defender? Nope. You have to really trust him in every part of your life and know that he will defend. David said this over and over in the Psalms. God is my shield. He's my refuge. He's my buckler. He's my fortress. He's my strong tower. Over and over, God repeats to us, he is our protection. In the New Testament, we're told, put on the armor of God, which is Jesus Christ. So it's the same thing. If I put on his armor, I let him be my defense. And this is very important for us. The more we let him defend us, the better off life is. I don't have to seek revenge on anybody. I'm not having to say, how am I going to get back at this person? I'm not going to say, God, I just need to be defended because God is my defense. And this is very important. Psalm 23, he leads us by still waters. He makes us a table in the midst of our enemies. (laughs) All right? And as I said a couple weeks ago in the bulletin, you know, that's a psalm that was really good for us in many other places If we can learn to put your name, my name, in the places where it says your and my and other things in the Bible, let's personalize these promises and you'll find that it's going to take different uh, statement. He makes Ralph in a table in the midst of 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 Ralph's enemies. He makes Ralph lie down in green pastures. He makes Ralph drink water. And put your name in those things. You know, start using that as an exercise when you're going through the scriptures and personalize some of these promises and don't and see if it doesn't change the way you start reading the bible because this is our book this is our book on how to live and we need to personalize it and say mine my book it's all of ours but it's also my book and each one of us should be saying it's my these are my promises And here we see Jerusalem being a city that God is the defense of. And that's exactly what he says in the verse 5. For the Lord said, I will be her wall of fire around about and will be the glory in the midst of her. God, the glory of Jerusalem. Now this is kind of an interesting thing because God lives within us. So he is our glory and, you know, he is the one that brings us. He will be the center of Jerusalem. In the millennial kingdom, Jesus will reign out of Jerusalem for the millennial kingdom. In the new heaven and new earth, in Revelation 21, 21 11, 23, and 22, 5, God is the light of Jerusalem. And in the new heaven and new earth, God is the light. There will be no shadow. He will emanate light from all directions and all places 
and there will not be any shadows. There will not be directional light. He is light. I can't imagine what that means, but it's light will be from everywhere. And he says, I will be your glory. He is our glory. You know, in, in Corinthians, it says, from glory to glory, he's changing us. He's changing me, it says. You know, do you realize that every time we step forward with God, he's changing us to a greater glory, to a deeper understanding? This is the beauty of walking with God. We study, he teaches us, he grows us, and he is the glory that comes out as he crucifies our flesh. And this is the good news. This is why when you meet somebody who just got saved, I don't know how many people have really experienced this, but you meet somebody who just got saved that you've known for a while, and you know that they got saved. You know, they don't even have to say a word to you. You can just see, in many cases, that that person is a new creation. It's, it's a light in their face, a twinkle in their eye, the lightness of their step, you know. If you know them well enough, and you know that they were burdened down and, and, and waiting for God, and then you see them, and all of a sudden you just see there's a new creation, the start of the glory to glory. And that should just grow from that point. And this is, this is the good news. We keep growing. And this is what I say. We, you know, we need to look back over our life. And it's hard to see from day to day, month to month. But, you know, we know if we look back, what was I like a year ago? What was I like two years ago? Not to be introspective, but just to say, God, what a miracle you're doing in my life. How you are changing me. I don't get angry as quickly as I used. I may still get angry, but maybe not as quickly. You know, I'm not as mean when I do get angry. <laughs> I, I'm learning to love more. I'm learning to forgive more. I'm, I'm learning to serve more. Whatever it might be that you look back and say, I am no longer the same person. God has made me a new creation, and not only a new creation, but now he is growing me and being my glory in a greater and greater way with each passing day. This is the beauty of our walk with God. This is why it's so important to understand that God just wants one thing, to crucify my flesh. Now, we don't like him to crucify our flesh. At least I don't. Maybe you do, but I don't. I don't like the pain of my flesh being crucified. I've learned that it's for my good, and I don't fight it as much as I used to. But I still don't like to have my flesh crucified. Because he comes in and says, Oh, you thought you had some rights? <laughs> you know, no matter where you are, you thought you had a little bit of rights? You thought you, it was all about you? It's, and God says, it's all about me. We're his servants, and the more we realize that we're his servants, and he has the right to do whatever he wants to do with us, the better off we're going to be. Because other than that, we get our pride, pride up in a dander, and we fight everything that he's trying to stop us from doing, and he's going, no, you don't understand. I want you to be my servant. And being his servant, sometimes we get to do things we don't like. <laughs> most of the time we get to do things we don't like. Not even, not even sometimes, but most of the time. And God comes along and says, this is what I want you to do. And then that's when we have to decide, has my pride been crucified? Am I willing to do what God wants me to do even when I don't want to do it. Some of the things he asks us to do are pretty easy. We enjoy doing them. Other things, it's like, not that God, anything but that. And I'm not even going to put the that in there. You all put in whatever that it is that you're thinking of. But you know, it's like, anything but that God. I, uh, anything. And God says, well, that's what I want you to do. I want that part of your life to be crucified. And here it is. He's saying, I will be the glory within you. This is beautiful. When you, walk with, when you get to know somebody who's a Christian and you're watching them grow, it is wonderful to watch the glory of God shining out of them and just see the changes. Now, sometimes we look at it and say, God, I would, you know, this is somebody I really love. Can you make the changes go faster? And God goes, no. <laughs> you know, uh, because he goes, you don't want it any faster for yourself either, so I'm not going to make it faster for them. You know, it's an amazing fact that we can always look at other people's 
weaknesses much easier than we can our own. And then we get upset that God's not working on their weaknesses fast enough for us. And we look at ourselves and we feel, you know, then that's where Jesus said, you know, you look at the speck in your brother's eye and you've got a big log sticking out of yours. You're smacking him upside the head as you're trying to get the speck, speck out of his eye or her eye. And, you know, we tend to be really good at this. Ignoring our problems <laughs> and picking on the problems of other people. This is where it becomes very important. Judge not lest you be judged. All right. For by what manner you judge, you shall be judged. We lift, we hold up the word of God to ourselves as a mirror, and we should be judged by His word. And as long as we're judging ourselves by the word of God, then maybe we can look at somebody else and say, "Here's God's word," and not in a judgmental way, but here's God's word. Here's what God says. But we need to hold it up to our own face first and make the changes in our own life before we start applying His word to other people. And you know, the one thing that really bothers us the most is usually whatever we have trouble with in the first place. Yeah. And this is what I have found in my life and in other people as I watch them, when they get really upset about something that's happening around or to them, it's usually an area that they already have a big problem in themselves, whether you know it or not. They're dealing with it. They may not be showing it out to everybody else, or you may not be showing it out to everybody else, or you think you're not showing it out to everybody else. And yet you have trouble when you see it in somebody else because it's something you're already struggling with. And so you lash out at them oftentimes. And I know I've done this. You lash out in something that I'm, I'm struggling with. And we need to be careful. We need to be careful in looking at ourselves and saying, God, crucify me. I just need to learn to love other people and let God work on them at his pace and their pace. Some people, God can work and change. You know, it's amazing to me when some people get saved, their entire life gets turned upside down and they change dramatically overnight. The majority of us have one or two areas where God may have made a big change in, but then he takes a long time to change their, those lives. The other thing I have noticed is, though, the people that take a long time are usually much more patient with other people as they're being worked on than those who change overnight. Because they kind of go, well, God changed me overnight. Why, why haven't you? Well, you stopped. <laughs> and many times they have stopped. They stopped on that initial change and haven't been changed since. The dramatic change. They gave up all their alcohol, their drugs. Their, you know, they gave up lots of stuff. But a lot of times they tend to stop. God did that real miraculous thing. And there's no real, real, real slow change. And they can get very judgmental about other people who didn't have a miraculous change with God. Now, I had a, a big one big change in my life, and the rest of it has been really slow over the years. But you know what? I'm actually very thankful that it's been slow over the years because it makes me more patient with other people that are just as slow as I am. Uh, but, you know, this is the great news. God says, I've got, I am your glory. I'm going to come in, and I will be your glory. I will be your joy if there's any praise, it goes to him. If we're being humble enough to let him have the praise. Because otherwise, we get in the way. And we want to be careful about getting in God's way. Uh, he likes to take our legs out from under us when we get in his way. And put us back in our place. Uh, <laughs> especially, it really hurts when you put yourself on a really big platform. And he takes you... And he takes the whole platform out from underneath you. Now, we need to be very careful because God is saying, it's all about me. I'm your glory. And when we get rewarded in heaven, it's all going to be what he did through us. Because we let him work through us. Because that is what is going to be eternal. If I did it in my own strength and take pride in it, then God says, okay, you have your reward. You, 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 have, you, had your, you had your five minutes of fame, 15 minutes of fame. You know, now, you're, now it's done. But it's going to be so wonderful when we stand before God and he says, here's all of your blessings. And we're going, what? I don't remember doing any of that stuff. And God says, yes, you didn't. You're right, you didn't. You were, you were humble enough and I worked through you. And our blessings are going to be something we're not even going to be, be aware of. 
when Jesus said to the righteous person, people, when I was hungry, you fed me not. When I was clothed, uh, naked, you didn't, you didn't clothe me. You, know, you didn't visit me in jail. And they go, when did this happen? You know, and then he turns to the righteous and says the same thing. You fed me when I was in prison. You, you, you clothed me. And they go, when, when did all this happen? When you did it to the least. When you were even aware that you were serving me, you were serving me. If we think we're serving people for the wrong reasons, God says, that doesn't even get credit. You didn't serve me. You, you, served, you served some people, so you got credit, but you weren't serving me. And we don't even know how many rewards we're going to have in heaven until we get there. And people come up and saying, you did this, you did this, I watched you do this, I watched you do this, you said this. You know, you gave to that missionary, and now I'm here because that missionary was able to go on the field. You, you did this. You know, uh, you gave one of the shoeboxes, and I got saved, and my village got saved. You know, so you get credit for a whole village because the right person got the box that you sent. You know, who knows exactly what we're doing? And and again, this is not to motivate us to go do things. You know, to try to get things happen because if we're doing it for the wrong, just to get the reward, then we're doing it for the wrong reason, and we don't have a reward. It's the little things that we do that we give out and we say, God, just this is for you. Use it the way you want and be glorified. God is amazing with us. He, he works through us. And he's glorified by what we do for him. And then he brings his glory into us and we get to shine and be able to be seen as righteous amongst people. And this is something that's so interesting. One of my greatest joys is to watch the people in this church growing in Christ and watching how people's lives have changed, especially the ones I've known since I got here eight years ago, but all the ones since then, to watch how people's lives have changed. And not because they're trying to make a change, not because they're striving to do the right things, but because they are being changed from the inside out. And that's where the real glory comes in and you watch them and you're going, wow, God, I have a little, little piece of this, a little bit of this. And I know it's all him, but I get to be the one to teach. I'm the one that brings forth the word and, and help direct. And I know it's the spirit in it, but to watch the changed lives that God is changing and go, God, I've got a small piece of that. And say, thank you. And watch how everybody starts ministering to one another and reaching out and God is glorified as we grow. And this is something that you know, we're preparing, and I'm really starting to understand that we need to be prepared for when it's going to get difficult to be a Christian. I really am getting a sense that it's just around the corner. How, how long that corner is, I don't know. But we aren't far from having tribulation and trials come our way. We need to be prepared to stand for God and let him be even more glorified. And that may mean that we end up being martyred, end up having troubles in our lives. But when you read things like Fox's Book of Martyrs and, and see that these people are remembered thousands of years later because they stood for God even to death and celebrated God. People singing praise as they're being burnt on the stake. One of them saying, I'm free, and he raises his hand and keeps singing and stands in the fire because he didn't want to step out because God had given him the grace to go through it. You know, all of these different things that happen, and God says, I am your sufficiency. I am the one that's going to bring you through. And it is wonderful to know that God is in charge. And this is what I keep saying. This is going to be a big election coming up, and this whole, our whole country could could change one way or the other, it's going to change, but God is in charge. He brought Nebuchadnezzar into to Israel to conquer them when, they, when, they, when the time was done, and he took them into captivity for 70 years, and they were released. He sent them out through all these different things. God is in charge. He uses people to discipline his children and nations. And we need to be ready for this. God is always in charge, and we need to keep this in mind. Verse, uh, verse 5, I go, and God will be our glory. Verse 6. Ho, ho, come forth and flee from the land of the north, saith the Lord. 
For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heaven, saith the Lord. Deliver yourself, O Zion, that dwells with the daughter of Babylon. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, after the glory he hath sent me into the nations which spoiled you, for he that touched you has touched the apple of his eye. For behold, I will shake my hand upon them, and they shall be a spoil unto their servants, and you shall know that I am the Lord of hosts, that I, the Lord of hosts, have sent, you, sent me. So he's talking to Israel and says, come back. He scattered them. And you know, he sent them into judgment into Babylon. And very interesting, during this period of time, Ezra, Nehemiah, Zach Zechariah, Hosea, they're all in that same period of time. And amazingly, Cyrus said, you Jewish people, you can go back to Jerusalem and resettle it. And only about 10% of the Jews population returned. Most of them stayed in their captivity, captivity cities. They'd spent 70 years though. They had gotten used to the world's way of living. Now in that, they also stayed Jew. Don't, you know, they, didn't, they didn't give up the Passover, but they had gotten used to living the way the world lived. And you know, this is something that we need to be careful about. It is easy to get wrapped up into the world, start thinking like the world, and rejecting God. These are the people you talk to and say, yeah, sure, I'm a Christian. Oh, yeah, where do you go to church? Well, you know, I really don't believe in going to church. You know, I, I do my own thing. Well, that's wonderful. You know, uh, or, or you'll hear, well, I can worship God on the mountain. I can worship God on the lake. And my question is always the same one. That is absolutely true. You can worship God on the mountain. You can worship him on the lake. Are you worshiping him on, the, on those places when you're out there? How are you growing? Who, who is speaking to you to help you learn to grow? Well, you know, it's just me and God. Just me and God. And you know what? You can learn a lot from God. Don't get me wrong. We can learn a lot from God. We can learn a lot from his word. We can learn a lot from spending time with him. But if you really want to learn something, you get taught. Uh, and this is something I can do and have done just about everything on a car by looking at a book or a video. It only takes me about five times longer than it should. And if there was somebody there who knew how to do it, they could say, this is what you do, this is what you do. Be careful, you let that go and a spring pops out. And, you know, uh, and if you twist that just wrong, you're going to break it and have to go to the store and buy a new one. Uh, all the things I've broken as I, and lost as I've done these things, you know, yes, we can grow. We can grow by ourselves if we have to. Well, let's make sure if we're going to do it, we have to. Yeah. If we have the opportunity to be taught, be discipled, we should be out there being taught, being discipled. Because this is important on here. God says, I have sent my people out because of their disobedience. They went in, and as he's described it, to the four winds. When Babylon conquered the nations that they conquered, they fixed, they fixed the enemy really well. They took the people out of that land and scattered them all over the, all over the nation and took people from the lands that they were in, into and moved them into their land. They never had to worry about uprisings because of people fighting for their land. In World War II, Hitler did not get all the French out of France, and he had to battle resistance or all of World War II because they were fighting for home. If he had followed Nebuchadnezzar's way, he'd have moved all the French over to, to Poland and Austria and all these places and moved there into to France because then they would not have been fighting for their country. And their neighbors weren't their own people, so you don't join up anyway. So this was a great plan that Nebuchadnezzar had to get rid of his opponents. God says, you were scattered. They were scattered all through Babylon. All over the, the 70 provinces of Babylon, the Israelites were scattered. So there's pockets of Jewish settlements all over the, the Babylonian empire. And when they got done and said, you could go home, Many of them were saying, well, we kind of like it here. We've got our, we've got our little group. We've, we've got our little group, of, uh, and we've got our little synagogue. We're happy where we're at. We've got our business. Why do we want to go back to Jerusalem? And that was the problem that, th that was going on during this period of time. 
God's saying, it's time to go back. And they're going, oh, we're just happy where we're at. We're happy in the world. Yeah, we're, kinda, we're kind of Jewish. We still pa- hold Passover. We, we meet on Saturday for our, our synagogue trainings. But, you know, why go back to Jerusalem? It's, that's a long ways to go back, you know, and it's totally different there. You know, we know the customs here. We've got our business. You know, I'm all happy. And this is the place Christians get oftentimes. God, I'm just happy doing what I'm doing. God, you want me to do what? You want me to serve how? I don't have time to serve you, God. I've got my business. I've got this. I've got my family. I've got everything going on. I don't have time to do all that stuff for you, God. I've got, you know, God, you've got to have priorities here. My priorities are not you. We've got to be careful of that. God must be our priority. And God says, deliver yourself, O Zion, that dwells with the daughters of Babylon. Come back home. You know, it's an amazing thing. In 1948, when Israel became a new nation, many Jews went back home immediately. And ever since then, Jewish people have been going back to Jerusalem and Israel in droves, more and more every year. And as we see anti-Semitism kicking up all around the world, we're going to see more and more of them going back home because that'll be where they're safe. And God says, I'm calling you home. You're to come back home. And we're seeing it very clearly in this generation. I know, I've known a handful of Jews that they're, they're really wanting to go to Jerusalem someday, at least to celebrate Passover at the very least, but many of them want to go to Jerusalem. It's almost like God is calling them, come back home. Come where you belong. You know, are we listening to God in that way and saying, God, where is it that you want me to go? When we make decisions, are we going before God and saying, God, what should I do? Now, I've had a bad habit in my lifetime of just moving someplace without asking God. And it looked good, it seemed good, and did devastation to my family. Yeah. I'm hoping that I'm getting better <laughs> at saying, God, what should I do? He needs to be part of all of our decision-making because he says, I want to direct you. I am your God. And this is the beauty of all of this going on. He says, come back. And the Jewish people are in the process of coming back to Israel and to Jerusalem because this is so important because God says, you are my people. And he's calling, them, calling the Jews home. But he's also talking to Christians. Are we listening? Are we listening to him and doing what he wants us to do? You know, and it's kind of amazing. You'll talk to young people and go, well, have you prayed about who you're supposed to marry? Have you prayed about your job? Have you prayed about where you should live? And people go, and you think God cares about that stuff? Absolutely. But you know, you have to get older before you realize that God cares for that after you've made enough bad decisions to realize that you needed to go back and do it all over again and pay attention to what God wanted. You know, our job as older Christians is to try to convince younger Christians, pray, listen to God, obey. Because, you know, the, the thing that I have learned over the years is most of our decisions are not whether I do something bad or whether I do something good. You know, I'm past all those bad decisions, not all those bad, but most of the, bad, most of the decisions are not between bad and good. Most of my decisions are good or best. And if we, you know, and Satan can't stop us from making bad decisions, he'll try to get us to settle for good decisions rather than best. He'll try to get us settling for good work or busy work in the church rather than what God has called us to do. We need to really be focused on God and say, God, I want the best. I don't want to settle for, I don't want to settle for good. I don't even want to settle for better. I need to get to the place where I'm settling only for best. Because Satan will be happy if he can't, you know, as long as we don't get to best, you know, he'd like us in bad. But once we've turned to God and we've pretty much turned our life around, bad is not, you know, he'll get, us, he'll get a hook in us once in a while on the bad. But he'll get us to settle for good and better rather than best. And we need to be very careful of that because it's easy to walk by sight and not by faith and settle for good. God is really good. I'm, I'm doing good things. And God's saying, yeah, but I had so much more for you. You know, you're settling for silver, and I had diamonds. 
the quick end of the story. You know, because the best usually is hard to get to. And it's going to cause pain and suffering to get to the best. And God's saying, I have the best for you. And we're looking short-sighted and we're looking for the easy way. Uh, God, I don't want to go up that 40-degree that, uh, mountain. I kind of want to go around the mountain. And God says, yeah, but that leads to the swamps and the, and the bogs and, and the pits and the, the wild animals. This, this gets you where I want you. And we so often try to go the short way. Uh, watching a movie one time, they're going, well, you know, this is the shortcut. Do you think there's a reason the road goes around that? <laughs> around that? <laughs> And of course, they go through it and end up in all kinds of trouble. You know, and that's what we do in our life. God, that's the short way. Yeah, but this is the better way. This is the, the drier way, the, the firmer way, the way that you're not going to fall into mud pits and get dirty on the way, way around. You know, take the long way. And we're going, uh, no, God, I want the short way. Well, the short way only takes us five times longer because we get into trouble. And we have to keep doing things over and over again. And maybe have to walk back to the, 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 the path and go back to the way we were supposed to go. Yeah. But we need to be able to look at this. He says, deliver yourself. For, verse 8, for thus saith the Lord of hosts, after the glory that he has sent me into the nations which spoiled you, for he that touches you touches the apple of his eye. This is the pupil. When it talks about the apple of the eye, the pupil of the eye, literally. The sensitive, the most sensitive part of your eye. I mean, all the eye is sensitive, but the pupil is extremely sensitive. And God says, if they've touched you, they've touched me in the, the most sensitive place that they could touch me. In Deuteronomy 32.10, uh, God says, I keep you as the apple of my eye to Israel. In uh, Psalm 17.8, David says, Keep me as the apple of your eye. Protect me as you would your eye, God. You know, picture this. David's saying, God, you know, God, you know, the apple of the eye is the most sensitive part. Keep me protected in the same way that you would protect the most sensitive part of you. Is that our prayer for God? God, protect me. Do we really realize how much God loves us at times? You know, I tend to forget many times myself how much God loves me. Yes, I understand Jesus died for me, and I understand all, the, all of these eterni eternity things. But you know, in our day-to-day -day walk, do we really, truly believe that God cares and loves us on our day-to-day -day walk? And that he has a plan for us. And it's an excellent plan if we will just walk in his plan. Usually we don't listen to his plan, and we don't do what he wants us to do, you know, and a lot of that is, what am I saying by doing that? God, I really don't trust your plan. <laughs> you know, your, your plan looks a little hard, God. I kind of like this uh, easy path. And Jesus said, he was the way, the truth, and the light. No one walks, uh, gets to the Father except through him. And he said, he's the narrow gate. Going God's way is usually going through the narrow, tight gate. And those of us who are big know what it's like to go through a narrow, tight gate. And you're going... Uh, God, that's kind of a, you know, can't you make it a little bit bigger? And he goes, no, I want you to get rid of all of the packages that you're carrying and baggage that you're carrying so that you can go through the gate that he provides. And because the world goes through the wide gate. Wide gate, easy gate. The worst thing about both of those gates, or the best thing about the, the th small gate, the small gate opens up to life. An abundance of life and opens up. The wide gate ends up at destruction. It narrows down. It's kind of like if you think about all of this pasture land that we have out here. If they want to round up the cows, they will chase the cows to this big wide chute that narrows down and narrows down until it gets them into the pen. That means then they can do whatever they want with them. They are caught. But they don't try to put them into the small gate first. They put them in the big gate. And this is what Satan is bringing us into, the wide gate that leads to the destruction. They just don't tell us it leads to destruction. And uh, so we're seeing here God saying, I will protect you. I love that God is my protector. 
God is a wonderful protector. He, it kind of reminds me of the little kid who says, my dad can beat up your dad. You know, we're, we're his children. He is going to be our protector and take care of us, and nobody's going to touch us. Yeah. And this is definitely one where you can say that. You know, uh, but he says, you know, when they touch you, behold, I will shake my hand upon them, and they shall be a spoil for their servants. All right? God says, I will be their defense. Why? So that you'll know that I'm God. Isn't it fun to watch God defend you? I hope you've experienced this at some points in your life when you let, just let God be your defense and you just watch what he does for you and you're going, wow. Sometimes I think he goes a little too far, but I know that he has to go just as far as he needs to go. But you know, God, I never would have thought, I never wanted that to happen to them because when God moves, he will do what it takes to deliver us. Because his children have been touched. His people have been touched. And he says, no, you are not touching my children. You are not doing that to my people. And he moves. And he defends. And you just watch. If we can just learn to get out of God's way and let him be the defense. Number one, he is a great defender. That nothing will touch us in reality, but he is also very aggressive in his protection of people at times. Because if we learn to just hide in him, he will also go out and win the battle. Killing 185,000 enemy in one night because the people in Hezekiah's day just prayed, God deliver us. And God says, okay, I've been protecting you, now I'm going to deliver you. It goes on, many times God has killed entire armies coming against Israel because they just asked, God, your protection, will your people protect us? What can God do for us if we just rest? I have seen it over and over in my lifetime that he defends and strikes. And sometimes, like I said, sometimes I feel like he's gone overboard, but he, I know that he knows what's right, and I know that he knows that that's what they needed. But it's kind of scary sometimes when you see what God does to your enemies to destroy and because they have hurt his child. And we need to just let him be doing what he does and step back and say, okay, God, it's all, it's all yours. Life is so peaceful when I do that. <laughs> Just let God. All right, God, you know, that person is being awfully mean to me, uh, but I'm going to put them in your hands. They are yours to take care of, God. And then watch God move. And his goal is not to destroy them, to send them to hell. His, his goal is to break them and bring them to him. So hopefully you get a brother or sister out of the deal that you now can love because God has no longer made them your enemy, he's made them a brother or a sister, and now you can love them. And if you've let God be the one that defends you, then it's easy to love them. If you've been trying to battle with them, it's hard to turn around and love them. So here we are in a position where, are we gonna let God get the glory? Verse 10, sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for I come and I will dwell in the midst of you, saith the Lord. And many nations shall be joined unto the Lord in that day and shall be my people, and I will dwell in the midst of you. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto you. And the Lord shall inherit Judah, his portion in the holy land, and choose Jerusalem again. Be silent, O flesh, there before the Lord, for he has raised up out of his holy habitation. I love this ending of this. This is definitely talking about at the least, millennial kingdom, if not the new heaven and new earth. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. And when you read the word Zion Institute Jerusalem, it's a poetic name for Jerusalem. You daughter of Jerusalem, sing. This is the word, cry out with a joyful, loud cry. This isn't even singing. This is, this is the war cry of, and, and joy. And rejoice. 
all of the Jews, all the Jews. But Jerusalem is God's loved city, so anybody that lived there is, is considered daughter. Yeah. It's kind of interesting because God will use daughter so often because we, we are the bride of Christ. So in one sense, we are male and female human beings are the female side of the marriage of the lamb. All right. Uh, so it's kind of an interesting thing. And then he'll, other times you'll say sons, <laughs> referring to everybody. Very, usually, almost always in the poetic language, you're going to hear daughters of Zion. Uh, but it means all of Israel, all of those who are truly his. And it also has that intimacy part of it. The daughter has that intimacy. You know, with our boys, we're rough tumble, you know, and the girls are usually that you know, endeared one. <laughs> Not 100% of the time, but usually. You know, they're the, they're, they're, they're the endeared one. And I like it that God uses that term. That we're his, he considers us the daughters. The daughter is generally the one you try to protect more. And I did. I'm, I'm be very much, uh, I'll be very much to admit that I was harder on my boys and less protective on my boys than I was on my daughter. My daughter was protected. Now, she was tougher than some of the boys, but, you know, but I still protected her more than I would <laughs> them. Uh, and I think that attitude is how God uses his term, daughters of Zion. My ones that I'm going to protect, the ones I'm putting under my wings, the one I'm bringing close to me with that endearing love and affection. And he says, I, for lo, I come and I will dwell in the midst of you. God dwells in the midst of us. And this is a beautiful statement. In Genesis 28:15, he told Jacob that I will come and dwell with, with you. In Exodus 33:14, God tells the nation, I will dwell in the midst of you. Matthew 18:20 and 28:20, 20, Jesus says, I will dwell in you. God has raised up people that he says, I want to dwell in you. He has a special relationship with people. Now, the Jews didn't always recognize that their relationship with God was so intimate. The intimacy of our relationship with God, Revelation 3.20, Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hear my voice and answer, I will come in and sup with him. He's wanting to have indwelling in us, and the indwelling is such that he says, I want to have dinner with you, and dinner is an intimate relationship with somebody. You know, this is why we do the end of the month dinners because there's an intimacy of breaking bread together and talking as you're, as you're eating and fellowshipping over that. And Jesus and the Father are saying, I want to come in and dwell with you. And this is the beautiful thing. And then he says something that is really hard for most of the Jews in verse 11. Many nations shall join to the Lord and I will dwell in the midst of thee. God says, I want all people. This was something that the Jews had trouble with. Even though all through the Old Testament, God said, I want the Jews. Through the Pentateuch, every time he talked about this, the sacrifices and the service in the temple, he goes, these are the rules for you and all those people. And yet the Jews kept getting tighter and tighter, saying, it's just us, it's just us, it's just us, it's just us. Until Jesus' day, they had a great big sign saying that if you tried to get into the temple that you, and you were not a Jew, you were, would be executed. No Gentiles beyond this point, you know, on penalty of execution. That's how far they had gotten. They literally got to the place where some of the rabbis taught that God created Gentiles to send them to hell. You know, somebody has to go there, so they just figured God created the Gentiles to send them to hell. There, there's no hope for them. Sounds a little bit like Calvinism. Hyper-Calvinist says the same thing. God created lots of people to be sent to hell just because they weren't chosen. He has the same attitude that the Jews had. And God keeps saying, I want everyone. There's nobody that is doomed for hell because of God's choice. It's because of our choice to reject Jesus' sacrifice. God's gift sends us to hell. And God says, I want everybody. To the Jews, he's saying, I want many nations. 
That word there is Gentiles. <laughs> want many Gentiles to come to me and I will dwell in the midst of them. This is totally foreign to the Jew's mind. It's like, God, you want us. You, you picked us. Out of all the nations, you picked Abraham. Then you kept giving us all of this. You, may, you picked us. And all the rest of them, we don't care about them because you picked us. Unfortunately, a lot of Christians start thinking about like this. God, I have my ticket to heaven. I really don't care about everybody else. You know, just let me go to church. We'll have a good church. We'll have a nice little group of people. And you know, we don't want any new people to come in and, and shake things up and bother us because we all know each other and we're, we're doing good. And I'm hoping that we never get that way in this church. And I'm, I'm going to do everything I can to make sure it doesn't ever get that way. I want new people in here. I like people in here that are having to learn. You know, are they going to do things that are going to be irritating to the rest of the church? Absolutely. But you know what? We need that. We need it to help people learn to love and to be accepting and to not do things the way everybody else does things. You know, this is, this is good. Now, to be just irritating, no, we don't want them just to be irritating to be irritating, but if they're coming in and they truly love God and they're trying to follow God the best they know how, and they're making little mistakes that are, as they're learning, praise God, they're learning. And this is what is the glorious thing to watch as people come in. And you know what? Sometimes we can grow by, watch, by watching young new Christians. I love being around new Christians. Why? Because they're excited about God. It is real easy to get kind of stoic with God. Okay, God, I've been watching you for a long time. Uh, when are you going to do something new? What, what's fresh? And then you, meet, then you get somebody who's a, who's a brand new Christian that everything is new that God is doing. And they're excited. And they can make us kind of remember. It's kind of like when you have a young grandchild come into your life and everything is new. Everything's exciting. They might wear you out <laughs> with their excitement and their questions. But it does kind of revive you a little bit, like, oh, yeah, that's right. That was quite, you know, that is quite interesting. I've gotten so used to it. You know, we need new Christians to be excited to really make and shake us up and remind us that God is good and that he has good things planned for us because we can get used to it. We can get used to the blessings of God. God, I'm just so blessed. You know, we recognize that we're blessed, all these things. But we kind of get stoic because we're so used to God doing it that we forget that it's a miracle that he's doing it. Whereas a new Christian comes out and goes, wow, I'm so happy that this happened, that happened, this, well, you know, well, praise God. And, you know, I was trying to share and they just blew me down, but, you know, give me the answers for it. You know, they're, they're all excited. And that gives you an excitement. I love being around Christians that are excited because it's new, it's fresh. And they bring that freshness back in. They're a breath of fresh air into your life and saying, you know what? It's absolutely true. God is good. He has really blessed me. It is a miracle that I got up this morning and he gave me life and gave me another, another day to serve him. You know, when I should have been dead in, in heaven because of all my sin and everything. And we need, the, we need that. And then in verse 12, the Lord shall inherit Judah his portion in the holy land and shall, in, and shall choose Jerusalem again. I love this. God says, I am going to get what I have chosen. Not that he's ever lost it, but he's going to be, I am there. Because in one sense, he did lose this world. When Adam and Eve sinned, title deed was given over to Satan temporarily. He's called the God of this world. There's coming a time when Satan is going to be thrown into the lake of fire and God says, it's all mine. Matter of fact, it's gotten so messed up by Satan, I'm going to remake the whole thing anyway. And you know, I don't even have a clue what the new heaven and new earth will look like. Now, I do not have that kind of an imagination. I am not an artist. I do not have that kind of mentality. The one thing I do know, it is going to be better than the best things in this world. It'll take all the best things in this world and, and just blow them out of the water. And everything will be perfect. I can't even conceive of what perfection is in that, in that state. A world with no imperfect, imperfections, no earthquakes, 
no troubles in weather, no, nothing tainted with evil. We can't even begin to picture what that is like because everything we do is tainted. Now we get tastes of it. We can get tastes of it when we're doing what God wants and he's working through us. We can get a taste of being in worship and prayer with him and, and just feel like we're in the presence of God for just seconds. But those are just taste, and even those are tainted compared to what it is. You know what? I've had times when in worship I've just felt God's presence and say, man, if this is what heaven's like, keep me. God, take me right now. If this is, if, if this is even a taste of what it's like, I'm ready. And I've been there several times in my lifetime just while worshiping and saying, God, did I just slip into your presence for a moment? You know, and those moments were like, God, I, I'm ready for this. <laughs> Bring it on. <laughs> I am ready. We have no clue what heaven's going to be like. We have no clue what the new heaven and new earth are going to be like. It'll blow our minds. If, you know, and it'll be good that we have the glorified bodies. Otherwise, we couldn't even handle what we're going to see and taste and smell and be around. And then verse 13 says, Be silent, O all flesh, before the Lord, for he is raised up out of his holy habitation. Be silent, O flesh. God is wanting that even from us. This is why he says, For we are crucified. We are crucified. He says, Flesh be silent. Now, the good news is when he's in the millennial kingdom, he will be lifted up. He will be glorified. But even in our life, he wants our flesh crucified and silenced so that he can be lifted up and reign. The beauty of God, he wants us to serve him willingly. We are bond slaves for God, which means a voluntary slave. The bond slave in the Old Testament was one who sold themselves to a master and at the end of their time for service, they're going, you know what, I like my master, I, I'm having a good life, I want to continue to be their servant. Now it's a servant by choice. And they would be made a servant. And we are God's servants by choice. We choose him. We choose him and we say, God, I want you. And that means everything about being a servant. <laughs> All right? Yes, there's the reward of living for the good master. But it's also meaning that we have to serve the good master. And that means do what he says. <laughs> yeah. And that's hard. It is hard sometimes to serve and just do what you said. And you know there's an attitude in that of being a servant. There are people who have been servants and that's their job. Being a butler, a maid, whatever, a gardener, you know, a good chauffeur. There's an attitude that comes with that kind of position. I'm here to take care of, we would say master, they would not say master anymore, but I'm here to take care of the one that I serve. Whatever they desire, my job is to take care of their needs. Now God doesn't have needs, but he does have things he wants us to do. And we are his servants, and we need to be ready to say, God, I hear and I obey. I don't understand, and the job of the servant is not necessarily to understand. You know, our biggest problem is we always want to understand why. You know, God, why do you want me not to bow in front of this idol and be thrown into that furnace? You know, God says, just, just do it. God, why, why do you want me to stand up for you and be thrown into jail and, and prison? God says, just do it. Just obey my voice you know and sometimes God is the master and he says just do what you're told and this is you know when I was manager most of the time I would tell people why I needed something to be done but you know when it got busy and I said do it it was not time to be asking me why I wanted it done it was time to go do what needed to be done God oftentimes will tell us in the word why. But there's lots of times he just says, go. And it's like, okay, uh, all right, God, I'm going. I'm going to be obedient. 
Our job is to learn to be obedient to the master. We've given him our lives. Now we have to treat him as if we've given him our, our lives. It's not, okay, God, you got my life. No, nope, I'm not going to do that. Give me back my life. You know, uh, so we need to learn to, to be obedient and to serve. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We ask you to help us learn to be obedient in all that we, all that we do for you. Teach us to be humble. Teach us to be submitted to you and to be obedient. And Lord, if there's anybody listening that doesn't know you, we ask that today they will recognize they're a sinner and accept your gift of, of, of life through Jesus dying on the cross and that they will turn to you. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10, 9-8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of, of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431.